and welcome to Spawned, a common sense, generally fun, and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Kristen Chase. And I'm Liz Gumbiner. We're the founders of CoolMomPicks.com. And today we're going to be talking with John Delavolpe about how everything we think about Gen Zers, who they are, what they care about, might just be wrong. We're big fans and we're so excited to hear about his new book. And we think he's going to have a lot of surprises in store for you all. Yes. And as always, we will close out our show with our cool picks of the week. But before we jump in with John, let's talk a little bit about him. If you're not familiar, he's the CEO of Social Sphere and the director of polling at Harvard's Kennedy School Institute of Politics, where he has led the Institute's polling initiatives on understanding American youth since we were youths. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> Uh, Just kidding. The Washington Post has, in fact, referred to him as one of the world's leading authorities on global sentiment, opinion, and influence, especially among youth in this age of digital and social media. And as parents of youths, we are so excited to talk more to him. And if his name sounds familiar, that's because you've probably seen him or heard him on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, on The Opposition with John Klepper, on NPR, on MSNBC's Morning Joe, or read his research and insights basically everywhere. And most recently, he's the author of the brand new book, Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. And as you know, we are big fans of both Gen Z and Saving America. So we are really excited to talk about this today. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for having me, Liz and Kristen. I think I started this survey you know, 21 years ago when I was also a young person. So I think we're all in good company here. <laughs> good company. Yes. I'm a yes. proud Gen Xer, raising two Gen Zers. So this is right up my alley. Like I'm fascinated by polling. We always joke that I'm a total dad and So of course, I'm a big fan of everything you're doing and your book is extraordinary. I guess my question is, since you've focused on polling and understanding young people for so many years, what inspired you to write this book with this angle specifically? You know, like yourself, I'm the Gen X dad, the three Gen Zers. I feel like I've been embedded with young people now for like 21 years, you know, from home to school to coaching and just kind of being surrounded by young people. And you know, four or five years ago, I found that the same questions I'd been asking for, you know, the previous 15 years were getting a very different result. And I began to notice this pretty significant change in just in the mood and the attitude of Gen Z as Gen Z is kind of coming of age, replacing millennials. And I'm not one of those people who think about like, you have to be born on this day or in this year to be part of this generation. Generations are something that choose you based upon this collective experience. Mm. So when I talk about Gen Z, I'm talking about 70 million young Americans, the most diverse, the most educated in our history around the ages of, you know, middle school through the mid twenties as essentially. And it was when those older Zoomers started turning 17, 18, 19 years old, I just began to notice this fatigue, this concern about their mental health, this fear about the future. And I really began to kind of dig in and study it much more carefully, which three years later, four years later resulted in this book. Well, that makes perfect sense. I mean, especially now in the last two years, right? We're looking at so much of how Gen Z is being impacted by COVID and mental health and school closures, like, and we're all in the middle of it. And I want to get to that, but I just want to talk a little bit about stereotypes, right? You know, I'm a Gen Xer or I I almost make it to elder millennial, which I don't know if that sounds great, but anyway. (laughs) I think it has to do with your John Hughes vocabulary, basically. Oh, is that what that is? You you really go right in the middle, Kristen, I would say. Okay, (laughs) okay. I'll have to think about that. So, you know, we hear 
you're lazy and entitled is the negative stereotypes about millennials and then Gen Z, like the sort of sensitive snowflakes, right? And listen, as someone who had to search for stuff on microfiche, right? Like it's kind of hard to not be a little annoyed when you have kids who have the internet and they're still having trouble finding things. So like I have mixed emotions about it, but overall there's a lot of really negative stereotypes out there. And so I'm wondering from what you've seen in your research, what are we getting wrong about Gen Z? That's the thing. I do think that most everything we're picking up or have been picking up, hopefully until the book has been wrong. To put this into perspective, I start with a premise that while every single generation has its own share of angst and turmoil growing up, it's always been difficult to be a teenager or adolescent. Obviously, social media just makes that far more difficult. But I argue that no generation in the last seven or eight decades has been confronted with more chaos more quickly than our kids. And just like, think about this for a second. Like oldest ones born right around the time of 9-11, mid to late 90s. And these young people, they lost their innocence and their sense of security so early in their lives. Financially, millions of their parents lost their homes from the financial crisis. We're still dealing with the mental health repercussions of that, especially on younger men. They go to school and immediately they're faced with lockdown drills and school shootings. Again, should make you feel more safe going to school, make them feel less safe and uneasy. Then we have like the whiplash in our politics between, quote, no drama Obama, right? And the reality show president and Trump opioids, global warming, there's just so much angst and turmoil, but rather than melting like these snowflakes. And this is before COVID, then COVID happens. And I think what's happened is it's made them angry. It's made them determined. And I think it's made them motivated to not sit back and take this, but to stand up, to organize with their friends and other like-minded individuals in their communities and the country, potentially around the world to change things. I think they're more determined than any generation I've seen, again, since perhaps the greatest. I think that's fascinating. And we've talked to a lot of guests about activism and teens and youth. We've talked to Janice Johnson-Diaz, who's Marley Diaz's mom. We've talked to Mina Harris and Donzele Abernathy. Karen Walrand. And I'm really interested in this idea that you could have been apathetic or even nihilistic or fatalistic mm-hmm. when you're, mm-hmm. you know, faced with all this turmoil. But instead, you're seeing this positive force of change. First of all, why? Why do you think that's happening with them, that they've turned that into something positive and that it's fueled their determination? And I'm curious also what you see as the core issues that they really care most about when it comes to change. Yeah, The thing that makes me most optimistic about this generation is I talk a lot about their kind of their desire to like fight and engage, but they don't do it just for themselves. And so many people who I talk to, whether it's in business or in politics, think, yeah, they're fighting, you know, just to cancel student loan debt or just to legalize marijuana in every one of the states. Instead, they're fighting for folks who need to take two, three jobs to pay their bills, or they're fighting for folks who are uncomfortable because of their color of their skin or their religion. They're fighting for a clean planet, not just for themselves, but they're for the kids and for their grandkids. So they have grown up with this like significant level of empathy. And one of the things I think that perhaps is driving that is when we think about politically how they came of age. Again, I talked about some of the trauma and the angst and the stress. And what was missing from that couple of decades or so in which they were raised is we haven't had a moment that they recall where America kind of came together as one, mm-hmm. as a united country. Like we remember after 9-11, or Gen Xers might be young, but we remember when the Americans beat the Russians in the 1980 Olympics, the American <laughs> Olympics, right? They, yeah. ha- they yes. haven't had, yes. they haven't had that kind of experience. And their first political experience actually was Occupy Wall Street. Mm-hmm. 
And what I think the value in the message that was delivered was that there's a sense of inequality in this country that needs to be addressed. And I think when they're 8, 9, 10, 12, 14 years old, that is the first way in which they thought about themselves related to the outside world. And it just wasn't fair to them that there was so much inequality in this country. And that sense of justice for everybody, economic justice, racial justice, et cetera, has been something that really drives them. And of course, they were inspired, not just by other members of their own generation, but by members of older generations as well. And I think that's had a profound impact in terms of how they relate to themselves and to the outside world. You know, I'm curious about this increase in empathy, and I'm wondering where that's coming from. And part of me is imagining that the access to social media, and we're going to get into that in a little bit, but this idea that social media has in a way opened up the world well beyond, you know, their own community, even their own state through around the world. And we knock it, right? Social media just, it gets dinged over and over again. And, you know, it is not without sin, if you will, right? It has its (laughs) moments. But I'm wondering if the empathy that you're seeing, has there been any correlation that you've studied or looked at or observed to having access to social, which again, has just opened the world to them? Absolutely. I mean, that was the idea. That was a promise of social media and the social networking now a generation ago, right? To connect people who share values and a sense of kind of community and camaraderie, et cetera. And ever since the evolution of social media when millennials were coming of age, I noticed like heightened concerns, for example, in Africa for those who are hungry and putting Rwanda as an example and other humanitarian crises at the focal point of the way in which they think about politics outside of this country. So these are values that millennials began to develop because they could literally see the suffering in some of the humanitarian crises, not just in our country, but around the world. And I think it began to kind of develop a sense of empathy, which was kind of has been passed down to young people. And now, of course, what we saw, frankly, in, you know, 2017, 2018, and more and more every day, younger people believing that they can change things. And that's what's kind of keeping them in this fight, keeping me so optimistic about the future. And it's a phenomenon we're seeing not just in the U.S., but we're seeing this in dozens and dozens and dozens of countries around the world. And I understand there's a reference in there to David Hogg, one of the survivors from the Parkland shooting in Florida, who wrote the intro to your book, who founded March for Our Lives and was part of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High group of survivors in Florida. But, you know, it's interesting when I think about you talking about empathy and Occupy Wall Street and wanting to change things, there really is a lot of focus on progressive activism, right? And I know as a pollster, you deal more with what the majority thinks, what the minority thinks. But, you know, I've also seen Gen Zers and viral videos that speak to like right-wing priorities where they go to counter protests for Black Lives Matter. They go to MAGA rallies. So I'm also interested in that side of Gen Z. Like, do you think that the right-leaning young people are also inclined to change the world. It's just a different view of it. Yes, I think it's a complicated question. It is. <laughs> you know, so yes, they have this sense of agency and urgency to make an impact without question. You know, to put this into a broader perspective, beyond like the partisanship and beyond political parties at Harvard for most of the last 21 years, there's a series of a uh, dozen, 15 attitudinal questions that we ask every single year. Questions about choice, about LGBTQ rights, about healthcare, about poverty poverty, about climate change, about free trade, immigration, et cetera. And on every single one of those questions, every single year, younger people are becoming more progressive. 
sometimes mm-hmm. a point or two, sometimes five or six more points. Mm-hmm. That means younger Democrats are more progressives, but so are younger Republicans compared to Republicans from 10, 20 years ago, as are independent-minded voters and, and young people. So overall, the country, I think, is becoming more progressive as older Americans pass away, they're being replaced by a younger, more active, more progressive group. In other words, the center is not the center of 20 or 40 years ago. No. I think that's really important. And we think about this country being divided 50-50, and it is, but I think of this as more of a two-thirds, one-third. Essentially, two-thirds of younger people supported Democrats in the last couple of elections. In 2018, somewhere between two-thirds and 70% voted for Democrat candidates for Congress. In 2020, I took a leave of absence from Harvard to advise the Biden campaign on polling and other youth-related research and strategy, and we won 60% of that vote. And in the battleground states, we would have lost, if not for the votes of Gen Z and younger millennials. So it's one of those things where it's like our generation, Gen X, is really the kind of the tipping point. We have very much a 50-50 swing block. Baby boomers, reliably more conservative, more likely to vote Republican, hold conservative values. Millennials and Gen Zers, reliably progressive, far more likely to support Democrats. So we're at this very interesting moment where all of millennials and many Gen Zers will be entering the electorate. And those two generations will be outvoting baby boomers in 24. Mm. So it's 50-50. Yeah, but it's really kind of a different story when you look at it by age. Well, if that's not enough of a reason that we need to be interested (laughs) in the Gen Z folks, then I don't know what is, right? Like, it's interesting to think about what's happening now. But as we look ahead to what they're going to be in charge of and what they're going to be weighing in on, this issue, especially as parents, is so important. And I want to go back to social media for a minute because, you know, you're a parent. You talk to a lot of parents. We talk to a ton of parents and social media bring that up. And it's like, it's ruining children. Right. And not everybody, but for the most part, I think parents are pretty concerned, right, about screen time addiction, about low attention span and focus and the mental health impact. And we had Jordan Shapiro on a while ago talking about his book, The New Childhood. And in that, he really takes what I think is a very progressive and forward thinking view in that we are not digital natives. So like we can empathize, but we do not have that experience of being a digital native Mm -hmm. to have always had a smartphone near us or in our hand. And so I'm wondering, what are your insights on how Gen Zers see social media? Like if you had to get into their heads, which you're doing research, you pretty much are. How are they seeing it? I think every day, sadly, they're seeing it as more of a negative than a positive, to be honest with you. And I'm no longer surprised because I've been hearing now for a couple of years when I talk to high schoolers and college students and college age people, if they could make a change, if they could make any change in their lives, like where would you start? What would you do? What would you improve? So many people say, I just wish I could go back to the time when I was younger and have to have a smartphone. I could just like ride my bike to my friend's house and not have to stress out about where I wasn't or where I was or who was with me, who wasn't with me and have that follow me all the way home. So this is something that younger people are now actually consciously thinking about and trying to to develop the right kind of harmony or balance between the use of their technology for their own mental wellness. I I mean, again, we we talked about the beginning of this book, and I noticed this like dramatic change in the tone of the conversations I was having, the fear, the anxiety that was so present and so real. When I began to ask specific questions in our surveys, whether it's at Harvard or other surveys I do, you know, the last year we found that 52% of 18 to 29 year olds, so you've got some younger millennials and many members of Gen Z in this, indicate that many times the last couple of weeks, more than half the days, they felt hopeless, depressed, or had anxiety. 
Mm. More than half, you know, a half of that number, about 25% actually indicated it was so bad they considered self-harm or something worse. 6% dealing with this feeling every day in the last two weeks. So this is, I'm grateful for the Surgeon General and so many others giving voice to this. But, you know, this is a significant epidemic of mental health. Younger people know it. Gen Zers are not afraid to raise their hand and talk about the stress. These stresses existed for a long time. I think social media has become a negative accelerant. And I can see it in terms of the correlation, not the causation necessarily, but the correlation in our data in terms of those who indicate expressing those concerns about their mental health are also the ones who are spending more time addicted to the various social media platforms, by the way, of which the social media companies understand and know. This isn't news to anybody, you know, especially social media companies. And I just continue to be disappointed in most, not all of them, that they haven't made more significant changes to the way in which they capture the data or algorithms, et cetera, to provide, you know, some hopefulness. Speaking of which, and I understand that completely. I mean, we are interested not just as people who write about tech, but we have our own kids who are in social media mm -hmm. and it's really tough mm -hmm. for parents. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering how you think about social media vis-a-vis -vis activism, because I think one of the reasons March for Our Lives was able to grow or people were able to get to the Women's March or Black Lives Matter protests were able to spring up mm. in seconds with tons of people showing up is because of social media. So do you think that they're seeing it as a tool or do you think they feel like they could have that tool elsewhere? No, it, it is a tool, right? It, it's a tool that clearly they have worked to kind of make their own. I talk a lot about the minutes and the hours, the days following the horror from Parkland and how the combination of David Hogg insisting to his parents they need to get on his bike to go find a TV network, ironically, it was Fox who put him on TV, you know, where he empowered not just his generation, but parents and other citizens around the country to stand up, call the representatives and do something. At the same time, he's taking the opportunity to empower people from TV, call that kind of like a top-down medium. And at the same time, Cameron Katsky, Emma Gonzalez, and other members mm -hmm. of his class are using social media to do the same thing. And I think within just a couple of hours, Emma Gonzalez went from zero, she didn't even know how to use Twitter. I had read the book, she went from zero followers to more than the NRA within hours, you know, and we could find, again, these like-minded individuals who wanted to, A, be part of something and then be challenged and empowered, not just to follow or to tweet, but to actually get out of the houses, register to vote, turn up for elections and try to change the system. That's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping that we can continue to guide kids towards a constructive use of social media because I do see the opportunities for, sure. for good over evil. But I think you're right. We do have a lot to address. But I've heard you talk about a lot of the factors in creating this generation, their attitude towards changing things and activism going back to 9-11 through Occupy Wall Street and the housing crash and the pandemic, certainly, which we're still in, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the biggest issues that seems to be relatively new, even since the book came out in January, is this growing theme that terrifies me about book banning in school districts and libraries across the country and politicians getting involved with what they think kids should and shouldn't read. And I'm wondering if you have any inklings yet or if you've talked to anyone yet and have a sense of how Gen Z is responding to this or might respond to this. So I think they're going to respond the way in which they respond to anything that's been taken away. 
They're going to go out and try to find it, read it, do it, smoke it, whatever you know, <laughs> the typical teenage reaction is, right? When something yeah. is forbidden. So in terms of limiting access to information, that's clearly going to backfire. One of the real benefits of this book is I've been able to kind of connect with so many younger people who've been reaching out, sharing with me some of the good work that they're doing. And there was a young person I spoke with yesterday who, along with his friends, ended up buying as many copies of Mouse as they could find <laughs> to distribute it to school kids. So I think this is aimed not necessarily at younger people today, but more of another chit in a culture war that will likely backfire. I think when we take a step back and we look at who the key influencers are of helping shape the values and attitudes of younger Americans, it's not just the David Hoggs and the Greta Thunbergs and younger activists, but it's also, I think, the response that they see from older people. You know, Bernie Sanders in a positive way, helping Mm. people think about what was important, kind of questioning the current systems. And that's important when younger people are coming of age, trying to think about who they are politically. And I think there have been a lot of older members of the other parties and conservatives and far and the alt-right who are having the same effect. You know, the way in which they're acting, there's a negative response to that. And it's only just hardening the values of this generation as well to go out and to seek justice. There's been a lot of other academic data recently published, which indicates that this generation is far more intolerant of books, which try to communicate values of white supremacy, as an example, or values related to kind of authoritarians in government. So open-minded, I think, to different political ideologies, But when it comes to racial justice, when it comes to democracy and freedom, this is a generation that really doesn't have much time for that kind of intolerance. Oh, that makes me hopeful. (laughs) I know, me too. I love that. I guess in that vein, I think this is a good place to end with this question, which is, you know, what can we do as parents, right? We want to support our kids, you know, Gen Z and even younger when it comes to the issues that they care about, especially if it's something that we don't know about as well, or maybe even this is the challenging one, right? doesn't align so much with our own passions and values. That's one that I'm definitely struggling with myself. So what would you say to parents? They've got Gen Zers in the house or they've got, you know, younger kids and they really want to support this passion that you're seeing so much in, you know, the younger generations. I think there's a couple of different pieces of advice, but most importantly, find opportunities to talk about the world, to talk about America, to talk about the way in which we think about politics and current events and how things might have evolved over time. I believe too many teachers and mentors and parents are just afraid of having these kinds of conversations, which leaves kids questioning, leaves them to go try to find their own answers on the internet without any broader perspective. It oftentimes stresses them out and adds to the overall weight of the stress and the angst that they already have. So finding opportunities to have conversations just like this about how they see the world and not be afraid to have a disagreement, right? Or to challenge any of their points. That's incredibly important. And it's something that I think everyone would benefit from. Well, one thing I know from my kids, they love to debate and they will hold Mm -hmm. their own if I challenge them on something. So I think that's a good opportunity for all of us. (laughs) That's great. Well, again, the book is called Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America by John. John Delavolpe. You can find him at johndelavolpe.com. You can find the book anywhere books are sold. We love our local indie bookstores. And what's your favorite? Do you have a social channel of choice, John, if people want to learn more about you? Twitter, mostly. So at Delavolpe is my Twitter page. Yep. Excellent. I will see you there. I'm there a lot. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. All right. It's time for our cool picks of the week. Cool picks of the week. 
John, you are our guest. That means you get to go first. Great. Well, I'm going to talk about a new film I saw within the last couple of weeks. It's called Paper and Glue. And one of the interests I kind of developed writing the book during the pandemic was an interest in street art and the ability for art to give voice to people around the world. And this is a documentary about a street artist from outside Paris named JR. It's absolutely fascinating. It talks about how he creates his art, which includes these significant installations, like, for example, on the U.S.-Mexican border, in supermax prisons in the U.S., and in barrios around South America and Europe. It's fascinating. I think I saw it on MSNBC. It's on Peacock. I think it's part of that NBC family, directed by Ron Howard. Strongly, strongly recommend Paper and Glue. Say no more, Ron Howard. I'm in. Yeah, that's <laughs> that sounds awesome. great. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of good stuff lately. There's like a lot of good yeah. stuff on TV these days, which is nice in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> or in a pandemic. What about you, Liz? What's your well, pick of the week? So my cool pick, as I mentioned earlier, I am extremely concerned about book banning. This has always been, you know, as a writer, you too, Kristen, and you, John, something of great concern to me, especially a book like Mouse, which <laughs> intersects with my own history as a Jewish person. And so I want to point all of you who also share my concern to the ALA website. It's ALA.org. And they actually have an entire section on banned and challenged books. And I will link that up on our site. But there's all sorts of ways to get involved, including like attending programs or streaming a webinar about it or organizing your own banned books program. I know that Banned Books Week is a special week in September, but I don't want to wait. I want to do something now. And if you're feeling the same way, we will link to the site so that you can find some ways to help and feel not so stressed out that something that might be happening in another part of the country could be creeping your way soon. Yes. How about you, Krista? My cool pick is a book. I had to pick a book and it is The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, Taylor Jenkins Reid. I got it as an audiobook, and wow, I have not been captivated by a book like this. I mean, of course, other than John's book. <laughs> Fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Available everywhere. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> then this one, I have to say, the voice acting is fantastic. The story it really twists and turns. And it was one of those where I was looking forward to any opportunity to be in my car. And, you know, I've got four kids. I'm driving them everywhere. So I, I usually don't look forward to that, but I was just to listen. So if you're looking for something fun and light, I think you'll love The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, but get it as an audiobook, I have to say. Super awesome. And of course, we're going to link everything up. John's book, Liz's picks, John's picks, mine, all of that over on coolmompicks.com on our podcast page. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Spawn. Huge thanks to our awesome engineer, John Bowen, and of course, our fantastic guest, John Delavolpe. Oh, yes. Get your hands on that book, people. And while you're shopping for your books on Cool Mom Picks, continue to click around and look at all the cool things we have and then head over to where you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review. We greatly appreciate it. All of those things. And you know what? A little tip that happened over in our Spawned podcast community. I believe this is from Daniel. He is so prolific with his comments. It really helps actually if you've listened to the podcast within the first few hours that it's live. Did you know that, Liz? What? Yeah. No? Yeah. What do you mean it helps? What does that mean? Who does it help? It, well, it's sort of like the algorithm on Instagram and Facebook, oh, right? It tells Apple that people are actually there and interested in listening to our guests and what we have to say. Exactly. So yeah. if it so moves you, we would greatly appreciate that too. It all works together, you know, to <laughs> help more people find our podcast. And of course, you know, we're on Facebook in our podcast community 
community. You can find us there, the Bond Podcast Community, which is where we got that excellent comment, of course, and then Recipe Rescue and Outtake Your Kids. So come find us on social. We love hearing from you, whether it's email or comments or tweets. We love it. Thank you so much for listening to Spawn. This is Liz. And this is Kristen. Have a great day. Bye.